The Guardian. This Guardian podcast is sponsored by Husqvarna, leaders in lawn and garden equipment. Husqvarna, ready when you are. And welcome to So Grow Repeat. I'm Jane Perone. And I'm Alice Fowler. And in this episode, we're exploring the wonderful world of trees. We'll be joined by tree expert James Hillier from Hillier Nurseries. He can shine some light on the business of growing trees commercially. And we'll be finding out why trees are vital for urban landscapes with Sharon Johnson from Trees for Cities. Author Luke Jennings will talk about the joys of tree climbing. And I'll be giving Jane a tree climbing lesson in one of my favourite trees in the middle of Hampstead Heath. But to begin, we're going to discover the amazing rise and fall story of one of British Garden's most recognisable trees, the monkey puzzle tree. Originally from Chile, they've now become very rare in their native home. Rare plant expert Robbie Blackhall-Miles can tell us more about their history, from its role as a trophy tree of the upper classes through to its current shaky status, both in its home country and the UK. And Robbie joins us on the line. Robbie, I love monkey puzzle trees, and so does my four-year-old son, who whenever we see one shouts, Monkey puzzle tree! really loudly. <laughs> tell me a bit about um, what's going on in Chile. Why are they becoming rare? Well, over in Chile and Argentina... Um, the monkey puzzle trees have a population size about covers the size of about a quarter of London, which if you think that Chile is three times the size of the UK, that's a really, really small area. They've always been quite scarce down there, but with logging for their really unique timber and farming practices, making them rarer. And then finally, climate change increasing the number of fires that they see, they're absolutely critically endangered now because of all of these factors. Perhaps we should also just say for anyone who doesn't immediately recognise a monkey puzzle tree, can you just describe exactly what they look like, Robbie? They're absolutely one of the most unique trees that you'll ever see. A single trunk growing straight up in, in the air, taller than most houses, and spiny branches hanging out at slight angles from the top of the tree. They're normally covered in brown or green cones as well. I mean, you really can't miss them in in the landscape. And how did they get the name monkey puzzle tree? I always thought it might be because they look like a monkey tail, but maybe that's not true. Actually, it was down to a man called Charles Austin, who was wandering around the garden of Pencarrow in Cornwall, and he looked at it and said, oh, it'd puzzle a monkey to climb that. And ever since, they've been called monkey puzzle trees. That makes some kind of strange sense. And monkey puzzle trees, uh, I most frequently see them in people's front gardens. The the British monkey puzzle trees, tell us a bit about how they ended up over here from from Chile and Argentina. They were first introduced by a man called Archibald Menzies, who was served up the nuts of the monkey puzzle tree at the governor of Chile's house. Instead of eating the nuts, he pocketed them, brought them back to the UK, where he gave them to the Joseph Banks at Kew. Two of the seedlings were planted at Kew and grew there. Now, for a long time, they weren't introduced to general cultivation in the UK. But then, coming up to the kind of 1800s, a man called James Veach employed 
William Lobb to go out to Chile and collect a load of seeds to bring back to the UK. Before that happened, they were only grown by the social elite, the upper classes, and they were a real status symbol. But then when Veatch introduced them to mainstream cultivation, they became something that was affordable and people maybe from the upper middle classes were able to buy and have in their own gardens. It's like the Grayson Perry coffee plunger, isn't it? It's those funny like moments of social mobility where owning something as a scent gives you a sort of sense of status, isn't it? The monkey puzzle tree is just some sort of bit of bling. Precisely. And have you ever eaten, tried the nuts, uh, the nuts of the monkey puzzle? I'm imagining they're like giant pine nuts. They're exactly like giant pine nuts. And in fact, I've had monkey puzzle pesto before Ooh. now, which was really, really nice on a good crisp salad. Right. I'm making a note now of all my local monkey puzzle trees. And I will. What, what time of year? What any time of year? I'm sort of. I picked mine up in September. Okay. September. I'm going to make a note yeah, in my late diary. Summer. Yeah. <laughs> September. Look for monkey puzzle nuts. You also have to compete with all the local squirrels. Oh, yeah. That's a good yeah. point. Their seed case is incredibly hard, isn't it? Yeah. And if you wanted to grow one from seed, you have to soak them in water for a bit to soften uh... that seed case to allow them to be able to germinate. And is that something we should all be doing, Robbie, growing more monkey puzzles to help save the native trees? Well, yes. I mean, if we do grow more monkey puzzle trees, then they're going to be safer in cultivation. I mean, we have, off the top of my head, I think that I know about a thousand trees that are in National Trust properties or in big stately homes or open gardens, but we must have so many more monkey puzzle trees than that growing in the UK. And the more monkey puzzle trees that we've got growing in the UK, the safer they are, really, for should anything disastrous ever happen in the wild and they become extinct, we might be able to reintroduce them to the wild from the ones growing in our gardens. So in theory, if you have a monkey puzzle in your front garden, which you may well do, you might actually have something of actual importance in terms of DNA and their future and the heritage of the monkey puzzle, right? Absolutely. And also because monkey puzzles are spread all across the UK from the far north of Scotland where it can get really, really cold, right down to central London where it can become really, really hot. Scientists could be able to use the trees to study the effects of things like climate change on the trees. There's so many things that could be done should we know where all of the monkey puzzle trees in the UK are. I feel like this is leading to a really good Guardian Gardening podcast moment. Surely we can help out here. There is a lady called Sarah Horton who is mapping all of the monkey puzzle trees. Yay, Sarah. I'm already a fan of Sarah. This sounds great. Is there somewhere we can go and, like, contribute? I've got about five I need to immediately plot for her. So what? how do we do that? Is there a website? If you log on to her website, it's www.monkeypuzzletrees.wordpress.com and you can get in touch with Sarah there. Brilliant. Okay. Thanks very much, Robbie. And you can read a bit more about monkey puzzle trees over at the Guardian Gardening blog. The web address is theguardian.com forward slash gardening dash blog. We're joined now in the studio by James Hillier and Sharon Johnson. James is from Hillier's Nurseries, the largest growers of trees in the UK. They provided all the trees for the Olympic Park and supply local authorities with trees for streets and parks. Sharon Johnson is CEO of Trees for Cities, a charity which works with local communities on tree planting projects in urban areas. 
for me, trees are one of the most important things in a city in terms of making it a livable experience because they do that wonderful thing of offering up seasonal change, of just looking magnificent and hiding some of the stuff that is particularly ugly. Yet it's quite apparent that there aren't enough trees. And I was wondering from your perspectives, from both of you, how you felt about putting trees in cities and what you felt were some of the biggest barriers? Well, for us at Trees for Cities, um, we're about planting trees where people are. And so that is in urban areas. And there are lots of barriers. One thing is it's one of the most expensive places to plant trees. You know, obviously, if you're planting, you know, great big woodlands in rural areas, that's obviously much cheaper. But planting trees in cities, you know, you've got all the problems with the underground services, all the street furniture, they're digging up roads all the time. So it's, you know, it's one of the most inaccessible environments, yet it's one of the most important environments because that's where people are. And does that change how you grow trees, James? Because clearly there are trees which are great for cities and trees which really aren't great for cities, aren't there? Yeah. Just yesterday I was at the um, London Tree Officers Association quarterly meeting and one of the topics there was about subsidence. So that's quite a big topic. You've got buildings and trees alongside each other and on certain soil types the shrinkable clay can cause buildings to subside and so that's um, never, never popular. And insurance companies then have to fork out and the, and the councils have to raise tax and all of that kind of stuff. So they are looking at some trees that are small growing and won't grow massively big and yet still look pretty. Mm-hmm. And then in areas where they can put big trees in, then they're trying to put big trees in those areas so they can get that canopy. So we know we have this problem with insurance companies and trees, and yet probably it's realistic at this point to say that insurance companies aren't going to kind of turn on a dime and have a different view. So should we be looking at using very different trees then? It Should we be... P- pushing and promoting and researching and doing all that stuff into finding trees which are ideal urban trees? What's happened over time is that we have got into this culture of planting what we call lollipop trees. You know, so it's actually not looking at, you know, how we solve this problem, but it's like saying, okay, here's a a solution that will cover all situations. So I think, you know, we have got into this situation of flowering cherries. I love them, you know, and in the right place. So it is the right tree, the right place, Mm -hmm. but we're not planting as many large canopy trees as we should be and they're often the case that we're losing those trees so um, you know we've had a project called future great trees of london which is about you know finding those special places where you can plant those large canopy trees which are you know longer living and provide the most benefits for biodiversity you know pollution all that type of thing is there an issue also that well perhaps this is just my perception but it seems to me that lots of people are quite tree blind just have really have no idea you you know even basic trees i would say everyone knows the difference between an oak and an ash and actually i'm always surprised when people go i don't really know sorry i don't really know what that tree is for that reason people plant trees in their own gardens without any real idea of what they're letting themselves in for. Mm. I mean, I met somebody quite recently with quite a large garden who planted a eucalyptus about Mm. eight years ago, and it's now enormous, and it's right near their neighbour's property, and they're sort of realising that the costs to get it taken down are horrendous. Mm. And if they'd have actually done a bit more research and knew something about that particular tree, they might have had a different approach. Why are eucalyptus so popular, Jim? I think it's because of they have that 
glaucous colour. So they, they are attractive, mm. and their bark is attractive, and so there's there are reasons why people would, would like them. Plus, it wasn't so many years ago we were talking about drought and drought-tolerant trees. I'm maybe showing a slight bitterness here because my lovely neighbour does have a, a, two eucalyptus trees, um, which he does keep quite you heavily cut them. back. That's right. But yeah. they do suck all the water out of my main border, mm. which I'm, which is kind of I'm kind of trying to treat in a positive way, as in, oh, this is a chance to experiment yeah. with drought-hardy plants, mm-hmm. and they are beautiful trees. But as you say. Yeah, they, they should come with a warning. They maybe, should, perhaps. they need a yeah. warning. There have been some really interesting studies over time to try and put an economic value to trees, which said that if we understood that they were important in cities and that they were essentially making us money, then perhaps we'd have a different attitude to them. I mean, is that the sort of research that you would pull upon? Do you think it's important in terms of local planning and authorities to say, look, it's, it's not just about the aesthetic value of the tree. This tree is doing a lot for the city mm-hmm. around it. Yeah, I, there, there are systems around. One is the Heliwell as I tree. There are uh, these systems around which really help the tree offices. I, I'm the sort of because it's fresh from yesterday. I think uh, really help them to um, put the case for the tree across. So there was a, 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 an occasion cited yesterday where a tree was asked to be taken down by the engineers within that council. And then the tree guy said, actually, that has a value of £65,000, so can you do something else? And then in the end, they saved the tree. They did a little bit of outbuild into the road so that the buses would have to go around the tree rather than hit the tree because that would cost them 16000 So once you've got a value, people like engineers, they understand, and then you can actually work that tree in a completely different way to people that don't get trees. They Mm -hmm. get money, and so they are very um, helpful. And I suppose historically for you, James, then uh, it's quite interesting with Helios because many of our street trees are wonderful and I wouldn't want to get rid of them, but they're a little inappropriate because the Victorians had no idea what they were planting, really. They didn't think that some of those chestnuts and those planes were really going to get as big as they were or we were going to be as busy in terms of our roads. So, I mean, you, you often find some really bonkers plantings, don't you, where you think, I, I don't think when you planted that, you thought that tree was going to be quite that big next to the house. But yet they are the trees that we all tend to love most because they are big and majestic. Yeah, that, and they've been around yeah, for 100 yeah. or plus years. So that, that, that is the, the dilemma, really. Yeah. And people do want to, to keep them. And actually, when the trees were there, everything else is built around them. And the trees are just so... They don't like to die. And mm-hmm. so they do everything they can not to die. And they might put roots down a wall and then out into someone's garden, you know, 20 yards away from where you think that root would be. So they're amazing things and yeah the difficulty is keeping those big trees now we've built stuff Mm. uh, is to put them in retrospectively Mm. but there is uh, something called TDAG Trees and Design Action Group and that's where the professionals uh, have really got together so um, people that signed up to it are landscape architects architects um, tree officers what they're trying to do is, is basically say, okay, let's do a plan of how we can get these big trees into urban situations. What do we need? And so, you know, the tree pit size is discussed and, and how they protect the services from the tree roots so that everyone's happy. And, and they are lobbying Parliament and that sort of thing, getting it into the planning documents. And if both of you, if you could get the Prime Minister, whoever that one next to be, ear, what one thing would you ask for to change the position of trees in, in cities? At the moment, we don't have any statutory regulation for trees. 
And so that is an issue. So there's no targets for tree planting. And so in terms of the, you know, Victorians, they did have the foresight mm-hmm. to actually do tree planting, to actually undertake massive tree planting programs, um, you know, for health, well-being, all that type of thing. Now we, we don't have that. And so it's up to the individual um, local authorities, councils to put in plans where they can. But as it's not a statutory obligation, you know, where funding is tight, mm-hmm. you know, so if the whoever comes into power can actually look at legislation that would be a good thing yeah i agree with that there's a lot of councils that do have a one-for-one policy if they have to take a tree out they replant another one but it's not statutory it's not throughout the country uh so yeah having having something consistent would be a good start also i think as a sector you know we have a responsibility and one thing that we're looking at the moment is you know if you look at the food movement how they've come together and they've actually managed to change the curriculum so now food growing is part of the school curriculum and um, and we're sort of looking at, you know, could we come together as a tree sector? Because if you can get children to plant trees at an early age, that obviously, you know, they, the tree grows with them and, you know, and their sort of environmental conscience. Looking at the tree sector, you're... Not exactly a dying breed, Ilias, but there used to be a lot more nurseries than there are now, aren't they? And that, that's a really big thing. I mean, if you want, you can plant cheap, small trees, but if you want a tree with impact, you need somebody who's grown it for you. So I kind of wondered if you had any, like, how you felt about your sector and where it's going in terms of being a nurseryman. Thankfully, Hilliers isn't, isn't a, di- a dying breed, but uh, the general tree nurseries, you know, I can think of in my sort of, I guess, 11, 12 years I've been doing trees at least four or five nurseries have dropped out of of the industry which is you know very very sad and it it is difficult I guess to make money out of growing trees they're quite inexpensive but cost a lot to grow and so people's appreciation of trees are um, their value isn't really seen the smallest trees that we sell are already six or seven years old that we sell for street trees for example to councils um, 12 to 14 centimetre girth which is a height of about three and a half to four metres tall it's been um, obviously propagated in the first place then grown on it's been uh, transplanted many times to get it used to being transplanted into its final position and yet it's still possibly to that council bare root it might be sort of 35 pounds yeah. containerized it might be 65 pounds mm. so it's you know it's difficult to make money really when you're paying people uh, to do this and yeah unfortunately tree prices haven't really changed in 20 years and and uh, there are other countries where horticulture is a bigger uh, industry for them and so they're able to have costs that seem to be lower than ours because they they seem to be able to achieve lower and lower prices which is that's our competition really um from from abroad we wouldn't have some of the disease problems we have in trees if we weren't importing so many in so if you want to make inherently resilient strong trees for our cities and by that i mean in a very kind of patriotic uk way (laughs) you need uk growers don't you yeah i know that that, that's exactly and and the ash problem the ash dieback highlighted that for a lot of people for the first time and yet it's been going on for years so if gardeners are looking to buy a british grown tree for their garden are there any particular trees that either of you would say are are your favorites or perhaps what's going to be on trend next i mean there's a huge sort of about four years ago circus canadensis forest pansy seemed to be the tree that everyone was talking about and was everyone wanted to grow are there any particular trees that you love or would recommend for people to go and buy and support their british tree growers another question bodnant is a very uh, a lovely tree uh, our top five 
sellers in our garden centre, so that's going to the domestic market, are Fatinia Red Robin. Oh, funny oh. enough. So talking, talking <laughs> of lollipops. Um, Not one of your favourite sellers. <laughs> <laughs> so people grow by that because of they does have a bit of colour and it's evergreen and so it's the one with the leathery leaves that yeah. sort of has they, the new red, shoots are new, red yeah. yeah and some of them do screening with it so they yeah. use it as a, as a hedge yes on stilts and so that's <laughs> how it can be used the next bestseller is uh, Bachelor Jack Montee it's a firm favourite for many years Circus Bodnant uh, is the next one and then Malus Everest and Prunus Pandora so two flowering mm. trees that are quite smallish uh, growing or can be controlled mm. to be quite uh, small. So those currently are the, the, the five best sellers. And yeah, apart from the Photinia, perhaps, you know, I wouldn't disagree with any of them, would, would look attractive in a lot, of, a lot of gardens. Funnily enough, on the commercial side, it's the native trees that are becoming more. So Bachelor Pendula uh, outsold Bachelor Jack Montee for the first time in the last few years uh, on the nursery. <laughs> and Asa Campestri, another... Um, native field maple uh, again is being used uh, you know, that's a beautiful a, a tree isn't it yeah. I mean uh, you can't go wrong with a field maple can you I don't know I mean, that's, no. yeah, I mean we would always you know obviously right tree right place but generally yeah. as much as possible go for the native trees yeah so my favourites are hornbeam but, you know. yes <laughs> yeah no, I like hornbeam well there's yeah. a lovely hornbeam in my children's school playground which is very popular for climbing which brings us on to one of the other topics we wanted to look at today which is well, we've already touched on it, children and trees. Perhaps this is the way to cure the tree blindness, is to get more children interacting with trees. And what better way to interact with a tree than to climb it? So I wondered if either of you would mm-hmm. say there's a particularly good tree that you would recommend for climbing? Uh, well, the hornbeam, like, like, mm, like yeah. you said, Pterocaria fraxnifolia, the wingnut. Um, we grow that as a multi-stem, and actually it was a child's play area uh, they wanted this was about a 30 year old tree but it was multi-stemmed so that the uh, branches are much Mm. further down they're so big and robust these Mm. branches fruit trees there's another great one apple trees is probably my best it's like I think very dear to my childhood like climbing Mm -hmm. they're they're made for climbing aren't they (laughs) well Alice is uh, taking me to uh, climb a tree later so I'm crossing my fingers that I learn some techniques which I can hopefully pass on to my children (laughs) James and Sharon, thank you very much. Let's have a listen to what children have to say about climbing trees. I'm absolutely crazy about climbing trees. It's kind of fun when it's quite risky and you could fall. You kind of feel proud as well of yourself because sometimes it can be quite a task. At school we have some trees and we usually climb and when we climb them it kind of makes you feel a little bit more open rather than stuck into school. So you climb and you can kind of see everything better and it makes me feel good. I like climbing trees because sometimes it's really scary but you're just telling yourself that you can do it and then you, when you climb them you find it really exciting when you get to the top. Also sometimes when I climb trees there's either there's a bit where you can sit on and I just either sit down and just close my eyes and pretend I'm in like a book or something. I like hiding in trees because people don't look for you up high. Also some small trees you can jump down and it feels like you're flying. <laughs> I climb it and then I just feel like, wow, this is absolutely amazing. And I climb this and the view is just brilliant. The trees that are good for climbing are ones that have strong branches and I'm not very fussy, but I like 
Christmas trees that don't have lots of spindly branches like Christmas trees <laughs> and trees like that. It's like adventurous and um, mostly I go up there and um, I basically um, imagine that I'm just in a different world sitting on a, a, a candy tree. Author Luke Jennings spent his school days shimmying up huge trees. In his book Blood Knots, he describes the thrill of reaching the age of 11 and finally being allowed to climb trees at school. He joins us now. So, Luke, it's my fault that you're here because when I read Blood Knots, which is a wonderful book, that whole section on tree climbing flooded me with memories of my own experiences as a kid at school climbing trees. I suppose it's that sense that you've reached something, that you're finally this person who can conquer things, that you've got to a point in life where you can move yourself away from What's happening down on the land, I suppose? For me, when I was a kid and I finally got to the top of the trees, I felt like I'd found a freedom I'd never known before. And I wondered why you wanted to put that into the book. Well, I think it is, it is about freedom. It is about being out of reach of the adult world. And it is about fear and terror, too, because there were these big trees in the school grounds and everyone knew who had and hadn't gone up each one and so it was a very public thing you could see people climbing them so you could choose not to but you you couldn't really choose not to you had to have a go and do you remember being terrified I do remember being terrified I remember climbing and thinking at what point if I fall will I die and at what point will I get away with an injury and you you ask yourselves these questions if I fall Will I bounce on the branches? Will that slow me down? Is it possible to grab hold of one of them on the way down? You know, it's, it's frightening. And these trees, look they, look they look a manageable size from the ground. But when you're halfway up them, you are very, very high. And a bit of a breeze and you're swaying. And it is frightening. And that fear is part of it very much. The biggest tree at school was a deoda. That was the the Everest, that was the, the ultimate test. So if you managed to climb that tree, did you rise in the opinions of your fellow school? Everyone could it's, see you do it. Right. It, took, it took maybe 20 minutes, half an hour to do, and you would watch people going up very slowly, and you could then see them sitting at the top. It was a rite of passage, it was terrifying, but you had to do it. For me, going up to trees was a very... It was a moment to, to remove myself from, from the world. Even if you get just to the first, you know, the first set of major branches, it's that sense of being off the ground, which is a kind of profound experience once you're up there because you put yourself in such a different perspective. The whole world looks very different from the inside of a tree and for me I think that was a thing as a kid that I realized quite quickly it's this extraordinary experience of doing something risky because anybody who climbs trees is terrified most of the time while you're up there I think coming down actually is as as hard as going up but you're suddenly if particularly if the trees are out in leaf you're hidden yet you're high and you can see things that other people can't and there's a there's an extraordinary freedom to that sense of being above your problems i agree you're, you're going to a place which isn't marked by the occupancy of hundreds of people before you and in a school in particular every area is a common area it's full of people and 
you can climb a tree and you can go and sit somewhere where no one has ever sat before. It would be lovely if you could read an extract from your book. Sure. For your first climb, the rule was that you were accompanied by someone who had made several ascents and knew the hand and footholds well. Jim Sheridan was in the second eleven cricket team with me. Lanky and unflappable, Jim was a very good climber and he agreed to guide me. The moment arrived. At seven o'clock on a motionless May evening, with the shadows lengthening and pigeons and starlings winging to their roosts, we made our way to the foot of the deoda. Ready, asked Jim, and I nodded, tea and jam roly-poly rising in my stomach. The early stages were technically the hardest, as the branches were so vast, great swag-bellied limbs six or seven feet in circumference that one had to haul oneself over or shimmy beneath. At this stage it was balance rather than grip that counted. The route I saw was marked out ahead of us, the grey-brown crocodile bark smoothed and darkened by the passage of those who, decade after decade, had made the ascent. At what height, I wondered vaguely, would a fall be fatal? Forty feet? Sixty? We moved steadily upwards, hand following hand, foot following plimsolled foot, and I began to enjoy the climb. The sharp pine smell, the sticky resin on our hands and knees, the prickle of the grey-green needles as you pushed through the branches. I looked outwards, and my insides lurched. The pigeons were now sailing through the air below us. Don't look down, said Jim, his voice steady. With the last twenty feet, I felt the tree moving beneath me. The motion grew stronger with every upward step, progressing from a gentle tremor to a full, sickening sway. I held on tight, feet braced in the fork of a branch, and clambered after Jim to our final position, a cockpit of intertwining boughs and green needles known as the chair, just large enough to support two people. So, said Jim, when we were both in place, what do you think? It was more than just the thrill of altitude. It was the sense that we had climbed beyond the reach of authority, that what lay before us was a map bearing any number of alternative routes, all of them vanishing into the future. To my twelve-year-old self, swaying amongst the pine needles, it looked like freedom. That was lovely. Alice is going to be taking me to climb a tree later today. Uh, have you got any tips for me as a beginner tree climber? Hold on tight. <laughs> I don't know what to say. Um, yes, don't rush. Yeah. Um, mm. Take it slowly and enjoy it. Time passes very pleasantly mm. in a tree. This Guardian podcast is sponsored by Husqvarna, leaders in lawn and garden equipment. Want a perfectly mowed lawn? The Husqvarna Ride-On Lawn Mower Range features a unique articulated steering system and front-mounted cutting deck, giving you unrivaled maneuverability in tight spaces, around trees, under benches, and against fences, allowing easy navigation of most complex lawns. Husqvarna. Ready when you are. So we've come out of the Guardian offices and we're now on Hampstead Heath, 
surrounded by a small copse of trees and Alice is here with me barefoot and ready to climb. I am slightly less ready to climb but still on target ready to give this a go. So Alice have you got any top tips as to how I should proceed? Well we found some entry-level trees and you know that because they've got very smooth areas where loads of kids have climbed them for a while. Now the rule is there is no rule you hold on to the tree whichever way you can right Right. because like you don't have to be graceful about this so if you need to if you need to like hug the tree (laughs) or move along on your bum that's like totally fine. The most important thing is when you come down you don't want to get yourself in a position where you've kept your feet too high so you always want to kind of move your feet down a bit and then move the rest of your body do you sort of mean you don't want to get to a point where your foot is up by your chin and then you have to try and unhook it in a really ungracious way so uh grace is going to be distinctly lacking the hardest bit of this one is going to be coming down it and i actually don't think it's that hard and what you have to remember is when you look from down from the tree you are looking at the top of your height your feet are considerably lower so it's it's getting your head around the fact that your feet are low okay and now this is a gardening podcast so we should say this is an oak tree oak tree it's an oak tree isn't it i'm not going completely nuts And, and it's rare for an oak tree to be good to climb because mostly they have a nice big step you know they have a nice clear cut trunk and then they branch out into into branches but this one has clearly was damaged when it's young so it's split from the word go so it makes it a nice tree to climb. And you can see generations have been up it. So okay. we're on a good tree. I'm thinking back to those occasional rock climbing days. Three points of contact <laughs> or something. So I've made it up to about... I mean, what are we, Alice? About we're, we're the first set of limbs. We're already, you know, we're already 12 foot up. So, you know, you've got, you've got somewhere... Got over the trickiest bit because that first move you had to kind of smear on the trunk and it's a little bit of trusting the tree. There was a little bit of smearing, that's true, and it is really. We were just saying it's mind over matter that you believe you can do it and you do it, and it's already feeling quite nice. There's a bit more of a breeze up here, and you've got a nice view, and I'm feeling slightly less panicky than I did a few seconds ago, so that's good. And also, I'm liking that you can kind of see what the tree's doing. So. this oak is just coming into leaf now and behind us there's a hawthorn which is just about to burst its buds and you're getting a different moment with the tree which is rather nice. I personally put my bum there yeah. so I put that foot over the other. So we've made it out a little bit further along the branch and we're sitting rather relaxed and happy on this tree now and Alice how far out on this branch could we go before we'd be in trouble? The truth is you can walk. I mean, you need to be held into something or to be able to have a branch above you which you can use for your hands. But you can walk really far out on a really healthy limb because the tree is structurally chosen the strongest kind of method to grow it can possibly. So it's surprising that even though the branches can get really thin, you can actually put a great deal of rope because they just get, can you see, they just get bouncier and bouncier. Alice Alice is bouncing now, so... (laughs) But the branch below me has lots of dead bits of wood and it doesn't have very much uh, new leaf coming into growth, which suggests that it's dying and therefore bouncing a lot on that would probably mean you fall out the tree. Could we go much higher in this tree, Alice? If you were a kid, you would already be. You can see where kids have gone up to there. So you can definitely go higher. But the thing is, climbing up is really easy. Climbing down is really much more complicated. Don't say that. (laughs) We've still got that to come. <laughs> That's what you have to hold in your head, is if you're going to go up high, you have to come back down. Right, now what do I do? I've got to just, 
Have I just got to kind of slide down this bit? Think like a monkey. Hold on to the tree. You're fine. You're fine. You're fine. Whee! Yeah. Yay! Oh, terra firma. That was wonderful. Alice is now doing it in a much more agile fashion than I was. And I'm absolutely in admiration of the fact that you did that with bare feet and pink nail varnish on. Awesome. Right, well, we've brushed off the leaves and pulled the twigs from our hair and we're back in the studio. While we're proud of our climbing efforts, they're nothing compared to our next guest, curator of Harcourt Arboretum, Ben Jones, who has climbed the tallest tree in the UK. And he joins us now on the line. So what was it like getting to the very top of the tallest tree in the UK? It was fantastic. I mean, the great thing about climbing trees is that when you start travelling up and uh, getting into the canopy, you kind of disappear into this sort of green leafy world and it's just fantastic to kind of be absorbed into the tree and sort of almost lose yourself in the canopy really. And what what is the tallest tree? What kind of species? So there's the, the tallest conifer which is up in Scotland and then you've got the tallest broadleaf tree which is a London plain which is down in Dorset. And have you done both? I've done the tallest broadleaf yes. And uh, and how tall is the tallest broadleaf? It is about 55 metres okay i think i'm going to be reserving that for when i've got a little bit more experience climbing trees that sounds and london plains have got quite smooth bark i mean what kind of equipment are you using to get up to the top so we use something called a throw line initially which is a really sort of thin diameter string essentially with an eight ounce bag weighted bag on the end and we sort of send that up into the canopy over a branch and then we use that to sort of pull our climbing rope back up and over. And then we've actually taken a few bits of equipment from the rock climbing and caving world. And did you climb trees as a, a child? I imagine that that has to be a yes, isn't it? It is a yes. <laughs> um, not quite as high, but definitely. I think um, any chance I could get to sort of be outside and to sort of explore and to climb and all the all the good fun stuff, I was definitely up for it. And as, as the kind of... Well, as the curator of an arboretum, as somebody who's kind of in charge of lots of trees, do you allow tree climbing on your turf? Absolutely. When people come and visit, the arboretum, amongst many roles, is you know to be enjoyed and for people to have fun and to explore. And then when we run different events, so the Friends of the Botanic Garden and Arboretum do a very good plant sale, we try and put on more structured tree climbing experiences, which can either be a bosun's chair where you're sort of hoisted up into the canopy and back down again, or you can uh, get on the ropes and have a climb yourself. And one of the things we were exploring was the fact that tree climbing is just a phenomenal way to fall in love with trees, because like you say, once you're up in that canopy, it's, it is another world. And yet we all feel slightly nervous that the next generation isn't doing enough tree climbing. And I wondered what you sort of thought about that. No, I, th- I think you're absolutely right. I think that it doesn't matter whether it's the, the tallest or the widest or the oldest. I think the trees are this sort of great way of sort of connecting with nature. And even if it's a relatively small tree, to sort of get up into the canopy and to sort of explore what's in there, whether it's sort of insects or just to sort of sit quietly and listen to the, to the sounds or to kind of observe nature, whether it's birds or, you know, I've even sort of sat up trees and watched badgers going about their business back on the ground. And certainly, I think it's a great way to kind of get people connected with the sort of natural environment. Ben, thank you very much. 
pleasure. Next week we'll be talking cut flowers and coming up very soon we'll have a composting special and then our last episode is going to be an Ask Alice Live. So if you have questions either about compost or generally anything about gardening whatsoever because we are going to have an awesome panel of experts to tackle your big gardening dilemmas please let us know either by email or on Twitter. And our email address is askalice at theguardian.com and our Twitter handle is at Guardian Gardens. We hope to hear from you soon.